welcome to Oncopharm. I'm your host, John Bazaar. I'm a professor of pharmacy practice here at the supporting sponsor of Oncopharm, the Bill Gatton College of Pharmacy here at East Tennessee State University. We're winding down August 26, 2021, and have a lot of stuff that's kind of been building up on my list of things to talk about as far as updates. So let's get right to it. Some of these are minor, some of these are a little bit more than minor. Uh, on August 10th, uh, lenvatinib and pembrolizumab was FDA approved for metastatic renal cell carcinoma. This is based on the CLEAR study published in the New England Journal of Medicine from a while back. This was already discussed on the pod, just mentioning that it did get the FDA approval. Uh, for all disease states, I'm still holding out to see longer follow-up on the subset of patients with favorable risk disease uh, to see what the actual benefit is of adding an immune checkpoint inhibitor is on top of a TKI. On August 13th, the FDA approved a novel drug in a brand new category of drugs, category of drugs we might be hearing more from in the future, and those are hypoxia-inducible factor, or HIF inhibitors. This is uh, Belzutifan, uh, brand name Wellyreg, uh, was approved for von Hippel-Lindau disease uh, in patients who require um, treatment uh, for either renal cell carcinoma, CNS hemangiomas, or pancreatic neuroendocrine tumor, um, not requiring immediate surgery. Now, I don't. It's an interesting approval for a drug to first get on the market. The way these drugs typically get approved for cancer is in people who have no options left, right? So metastatic after two lines of treatment, for example. This is before they've had any treatment at all, potentially. Um, it, it could be recurrent disease, it could be uh, multiple recurrences, uh, and they don't need surgery right away, but they may need treatment. What those indications are for treatment, I don't actually know. Um, so for renal cell carcinoma, the disease I'm most familiar with here, uh, you could just surgically resect it right away. So I, I, honestly, so let's say somebody has uh, von Hippel-Lindau disease, which is uh, a disorder where the von Hippel-Lindau gene uh, is defective. And what von Hippel-Lindau does, the gene encodes for a protein that inactivates hypoxia-inducible factor. So in the state of hypoxia, so not enough oxygen, uh, a factor is induced. It's called hypoxia-inducible factor. And that goes on to stimulate the increased production of VEGF, uh, as well as angiogenesis, proliferation, and tumor growth. This is kind of the central pathway in the pathogenesis of renal cell carcinoma, which is why we use VEGF inhibitors. If you have von Hippel-Lindau disease, your gene for von Hippel-Lindau, uh, the, the, uh, the protein that inactivates hypoxia-inducible factor doesn't work, which means you get a whole bunch more HIF activity. So this HIF inhibitor makes sense uh, from a, a pathophysiology standpoint. This specifically is a HIF2-alpha inhibitor. So if you had von Hippel-Lindau disease and you had, I don't know, let's say, uh, you had, you know, von Hippel-Lindau disease with renal cell carcinoma can often present bilaterally, and you might not be able to tolerate a bilateral nephrectomy. Uh, and maybe you have nephrectomy on the left side, and on the right side, uh, you're not going to go to treatment yet. Maybe you would use this drug, but it, I don't know. I don't know. It's an interesting drug. It's a novel mechanism of action, which is why we're talking about it. There's also some, some unique stuff in here. Um, so this is based on a study in 61 patients with an overall response rate of 49%. Not terribly impressive, not terribly sure what the role will be, but there's some interesting stuff to talk about as a novel drug, as well as some stuff in the PI. So if you block hypoxia-inducible factor, what does your body do when it's hypoxic and needs to make 
Um, more, you know, red blood cells. Uh, we don't know. And the most common side effect here was anemia. 90% of patients had anemia, although only 7% had a grade 3 anemia, and the median onset to anemia was one month. Um, up to 29% had hypoxia, 16% being a grade 3 hypoxia. Um, and so they're looking at kind of a, 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 an O2 saturation of 88% of being uh, where they're really looking at, at holding therapy until that returns to normal. Um, this is, you know, to the point that if somebody were on a drug like this, you wonder, do they need a, a, a home pulse ox, which anecdotally people are buying in, in, if they think they have COVID to, to watch for that, or if they do have COVID to watch for that. Uh, there's also some embryofetal toxicity you worry about. The other side effects, fatigue in about two-thirds, visual disturbances in, in one out of five, uh, headache dizziness in about two out of five, and an increased creatinine in 64% likely due to uh, your T-fans inhibition of the uh, transporter MATE2K. Um, it, it's interesting here um, in the protocol, there is a separate section, the PIA 12.5, for pharmacogenomics, and they specifically say that those who are 2C19 and UGT2B17 poor metabolizers have higher toxicity and may need a dose reduction. It implies that you need to genotype folks up front prior to starting this drug, similar to what the label says for liposomal ironotecan. Now, CYP2C19 is pretty easy to, to genotype. People have been doing it for clopidogrel for years. Uh, UGTB17 or UGBT, UGTB17 uh, or 2B17 is not as common. In fact, uh, the, the one-ohm test, the one I'm familiar with for doing, it's called the right med test that you do kind of a whole, not a whole, but a, a target pharmacogenomic sequencing uh, you know, doesn't include UGT2B17. Um, so I wonder if Merck, who makes this drug, is going to have a, a test specific for this uh, in the future. Uh, there could be potentially a role for drug interactions increasing toxicity. Drugs that inhibit 2C19 include most of our PPIs, with the exception of pantoprazole. Uh, drugs that inhibit UGT2B17 include a matinib, but it's hard to find a list of other drugs that may do that. Um, and maybe the most interesting thing in reading about this drug is UGT, this is a glucuronidase enzyme, uh, so glucuronidase transferase, I think, is the GT. UGT2B17 is involved in the glucuronidation of testosterone, and polymorphisms in UGT2B17 have implications for people who have, like, positive tests for testosterone doping for, for athletic events. So if you know of anybody who is involved in uh, like um, athletic medicine or sports medicine, uh, this is something that uh, is, a, is a useful thing for, for pharmacogenetics in, in sports medicine going down the road. I don't think you're going to hear a lot from this drug anytime soon. Uh, it is being studied in conjunction with TKIs and immune checkpoint inhibitors for treating renal cell carcinoma. Renal cell carcinoma. That will be interesting to see that research. And there are, I think every company probably has their own uh, hypoxia inducible factor, whether it's a HIF2 beta or alpha, uh, you will see more from this disease or more from this um, pharmacologic category of drugs going into the future. <clears throat> okay, August 18th, we had an expanded approval or an updated indication for uh, Dostarlamab, which is a PD1 inhibiting monoclonal antibody. Recently approved, I think this year we talked about it, its initial approval was for mismatched pair deficient endometrial cancer which at the time was, uh, I think, a useful, potentially a useful indication because most of the data we had with pembrolizumab site agnostic indication for mismatch repair deficient or, or microsatellite instability 
uh, was mostly in colorectal cancer. Not all those folks had endometrial cancer, so a dedicated analysis in endometrial cancer would be welcome for those patients. In this case, the distarlamab site agnostic approval, most of the patients in, that, in this cohort that got approved had colon cancer. We already know immunotherapy has activity there. Kind of like just another statin approval. You know, I don't know that this adds a whole lot to, to the armamentarium of, of treating cancer. The very next day, August 19th, the FDA approved one year of nivolumab in the adjuvant setting for high-risk urothelial carcinoma. This is uh, Checkmate 274, which was published uh, in July in uh, the New England Journal of Medicine. It, the primary endpoint was disease-free survival. You know what I think if it's the overall survival should be the goal, especially in the adjuvant setting. Uh, the disease-free survival difference was 20.8 versus 10.8 months, and we've talked about this on the pod too. What's interesting is the, the Kappa Meyer curves for disease-free survival separate a lot while the folks are on Nevo, and then after they stop Nevo, the curves come together quite a bit. This was, um, <clears throat> you know, we, that, and most of the benefit, mo- more of the benefit was in the pd one positive versus the all-comers group. Um, you know, so hopefully we'll see, you know, more overall survival from this. Um, uh, and uh, my guess is, um, and most of the benefit were, were in folks that were pd one positive and those who had neoadjuvant chemo. That was the majority of the benefit. Um, about 40% of the patients in the study had pd one positive disease. Interestingly, a similar study was done with a tizolizumab. This is Invigor 110 that didn't show any benefit. Uh, and you do see benefit from Nevo. So either PD-1 inhibitors are better than PD-L1, or this is just chance and just noise, this DSF benefit. Um, now, relatedly, if you're trying to predict is Nevo going to get approval for adjuvant urothelial cancer, uh, pembrolizumab, um, oh, sorry, no, Nevo, this is the approval for Nevo. If you're one, relatedly, there is... Um, the keynote 564, which was an ASCO plenary session, we talked about it on the podcast. This was adjuvant pembrolizumab uh, after uh, surgical resection for high-risk uh, renal cell carcinoma. That was published in the New England Journal of Medicine. And remember, this was the study. It was adjuvant treatment, so it should have been just stage three people. But there were some folks in the study who had uh, M1, had metastatic disease that had had a complete metastatectomy. So they had no evidence of disease, but they already had shown their spots of being a metastatic disease. There were some of those patients included in the study, and here we see the forest plot. And, and even if you look just in the forest plot for, uh, for those folks uh, with disease-free survival that didn't have metastatic disease, there were still benefit, although the benefit was, was closer to, to uh, a less modest hazard ratio. Overall survival is still to come, although the authors in this New England Journal of Medicine publication from last week do say there was lots of censoring beyond two years. So it, that can make it hard to really have an accurate overall survival assessment if there's a lot of censoring going on uh, later in the, the course here. Okay, So, you know, we have a, the FDA approval for nivolumab, adjuvant for, for bladder cancer. That is FDA approved. We have the publication of the adjuvant pembrolizumab study for kidney cancer, FDA approval. Uh, I don't know if it'll come. They, they've already approved Nevo based on DFS. So seems to set the stage for an approval for Pembro for DFS without seeing OS. And we've seen this for OC-Mertinib as well for in the adjuvant treatment for three years for non-small cell lung cancer. So perhaps a precedent that may may not be that fruitful, we will see longer follow-up as needed. Um, and, and just to put a, a point on it, when you look at the, the Nevo approval, um, 
you know, by doing this adjuvant treatment, are you really just pre-treating, you know, micrometastatic disease that's going to come back anyway? And when they do progress or they do relapse after having a year of nivolumab, does that render then metastatic treatment with immunotherapy null and void? And, and what is what is better for those patients in the long run with regards to living longer? Need really dedicated studies to look at overall survival, in my opinion, to assess that. Okay. Uh, and then yesterday, August 25th, the FDA approved Ivocidinib, this is a brand name, uh, Tibsovo, for IDH1 mutated cholangiocarcinoma. This was uh, something that that we have seen. Uh, I know people have been using ivacinib off-label for IDH1 mutated cholangiocarcinoma, a cancer of the gallbladder, the bile duct. Um, <clears throat> so this, this data has been out there, and since ivacinib was on the market for IDH1 mutated AML, it was reasonable for people to kind of explore this off-label. This approval is for metastatic cholangiocarcinoma after one or two lines of treatment. Not zero, not three. It has to be just one or two, uh, and it had to have either been agemcitabine or 5-FU that they received. It's interesting that they didn't require them to receive a platinum uh, as well. Now, IDH1 mutations are not all that common in cholangiocarcinoma. It looks to be around maybe 10%, uh, which is a reasonable number. Um, it could be up to 20% of cholangios that are that are intrahepatic. It it's, looks to be unlikely an extrahepatic cholangio. Uh, carcinoma would expand. Uh, have an IDH1 mutation. It also looks like IDH1 mutations are more common in non-Asians with cholangiocarcinoma than Asians with cholangiocarcinoma. Uh, this approval is based off of a study of 185 patients, randomized two to one to ivacidinib or placebo. Big, big improvement in progression-free survival, hazard ratio of 0.37. Um, these curves, uh, people on ivacidinib or placebo overlap for two months, and then the ivacidinib starts to plateau it's a plateau that goes downhill, but the placebo group goes straight downhill, and then these Katmai curves really widens pretty substantially, as you would expect for a hazard ratio so far from 1 at 0.37. Now, the overall survival numbers were almost the same, but 70% of people on placebo crossed over to ivacidinib, making it probably unlikely we'll, we'll see an overall survival benefit from this. Um, and then lastly, you know, it's been... You know, uh, my favorite band of all time is the Rolling Stones. This has nothing to do with oncology pharmacy, I don't think. Um, um, the the drummer for the Rolling Stones, Charlie Watts, died uh, recently. Just what a what a bad. What a, you know, remember June? COVID cases were so low, things seemed to be going great. June was great. It wasn't that long ago. Um, so anyway, here are my top five Rolling Stone songs. Uh, one, Loving Cup. Love that song. Two rocks off. Greatest rock and roll song. The sunshine bores the daylights out of me. One of the greatest, greatest rock lyrics of all time. Three, Dear Doctor. Uh, it's the Rolling Stones, but it's a darn good country music song, if you ask me. Uh, number four, Get Off of My Cloud. And number five, Miss You, a darn good disco song, if you ask me. And then, just as a wild card, um, She's a Rainbow. Uh, nice little song, not even in my top ten. Just mention it that it has a really nice... Um, shout out and use in uh, season two of Ted Lasso, which is, is just a delight and a way to detach from all the bad things going on in the world with people not getting vaccinated and protesting outside of hospitals. Uh, hang in there, everyone. I see what you're doing. I appreciate what you're doing. Hang in there. Fight the good fight. Um, thank you for listening. Uh, you can follow me on uh, on Twitter uh, at Farm Deep Dip. You can follow me 
in the podcast on Twitter and Instagram at OncoFarmPod. I will share the episode this week. I haven't done that in a while. Um, and, you know, if you have questions or ideas for future episodes, feel free to reach out to me. And until I talk to you again, remember, doses matter. Thank you.